0: Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. It is indeed an um, a, um, absolute privilege <laughs> and joy uh, to uh, be amongst you all virtually today. My, my only lament is I wish. <laughs> I wish it could have been in person. There are a number of people who I I look forward to one day being able to meet in person uh, that I've gotten to learn from and, and hear from virtually during our time together. You know, uh, as as I uh, reflected on yesterday and, and today, um, I thought about this presentation, kind of where it's placed. I, I, I tend to be a person who likes to go early in, <laughs> in the presentation process. I, I like, you know, we, we have a very, it's a very high bar of, um, of, of excellence and the vulnerability and thoughtfulness. And uh, what I hope to contribute um, is something that uh, uh, certainly, um, does service to the magnitude and the depth of the topic. But you are welcome to pray for me (laughs) that that would take place. And I also would love to invite you in just a short moment of pausing, a short moment of deep breathing, a short moment of being still. In my line of work, we call this mindfulness meditation. And there are many classes that I start this way. Um, But when I think about what we have been learning about, what we have been processing, it is deeply, deeply weighty, and it is incredibly personal. And so if you would join me, just 30 seconds, 30 seconds of deep breathing, wherever you are, one breath for each moment. Five, four, three, two, one. The high cost of solidarity. So racial stratification, we have had some absolutely excellent uh, talks and conversations already about about racial injustice, about racialization, about um, race as being on the agenda, being one of the, Um, one of the agents, one of the components for manipulation of the racist capitalist system, right? Um, And racial stratification, wherever we have the development of race as we have come to know it since the 1600s, race is designed to categorize on the agenda of stratification, (laughs) categorize to stratify and racial stratification Takes work. Uh, there are many times in which things can look as if it is inevitable. It's simply the way it is. I think about working with organizations and, and churches, for example, that are largely um, and ins- academic institutions that are that are largely white and certainly uh, white controlled in terms of who has the power, uh, dollars, hiring decisions, etc. Um, and there are times when I will come in and talk to people and they will say things like, you know we really want to we really want to diversify. like we would love we would love to have more X,Y,Z types of people here. And one of the questions that I ask them, and, I, and I'm not even trying to be unnecess- necessarily uh, pro- unnecessarily provocative, is how do you keep it so white? How do you keep the space as it is? And so um, the the presuppositions under that question is that, The places where we find ourselves, the communities, the institutions, um, they are indeed a result of intentional, intentional gatekeeping, intentional boundary setting, right? Um, So racial stratification, even though at this point in 2022, it can almost look like it's inevitable, that it's almost natural, it takes work, it takes work. Uh, and very, very sophisticated work, uh, in order for these systems of racial injustice to persist. And I know that they feel like at times that they are unable to move, unable to budge. And and I myself often use language like you know racial injustice is woven into the fabric, into the narrative, into the story of the states, for example. But one of the things that actually gives me hope is that it takes work to keep it that way, <laughs> which lets me know that it is more flimsy than it sometimes presents itself to be. The inevitability of racial stratification is more flimsy than it presents itself to be. And racial stratification takes work. one of the things I often talk about gleaning from the wisdom of the last couple of hundreds of years of people who have written and preached and talked about this topic and lived about this topic really are kind of the four ways, the four walls, the four legs that prop up racial stratification, that keep it in place, that keep it looking uh, inevitable and unable to penetrate. One of those is violence. Violence is a necessary component of racial stratification. It's necessary, it's necessary. It's painful, it's gripping, it's grievous, it's horrendous. But racism doesn't exist without violence. It doesn't exist without violence. I have to tell you, I was so deeply moved by many of the lectures and talks so far, but, so far, but um, I woke up this morning thinking about uh, Dr. Jane Hong's talk. And what I kept thinking about was, how i and she and and really her reminding us of the childhood ambitions of Latasha Harlans and the way in which she wanted to pursue a career of justice doing and justice seeking she wanted to be a lawyer and i thought how much we have lost how much we have lost that today we don't get to benefit from the justice seeking of attorney Latasha Harlins, violence—the necessary violence of racism—took her away from us. And she, by the way, is not the only one. The other leg, so to speak, that helps to prop up racial injustice, racial stratification, in this system is political power and laws, laws, policies. Government endorsement of the racist system. And sometimes that government endorsement of the racist system can be right on the nose, right? Uh, It can be so on the nose that it prohibits people who identify differently racially from marrying each other. It can be so on the nose that there are um, runaway slave laws. It can be so on the nose that there are laws set in place that prohibit uh, certain groups of Asians from coming to the United States, not just for a decade, but for decades, as we think about the Chinese Exclusion Act and and its expansion to other groups outside of just China. Racial stratification requires violence. It requires political power and laws. And some of those laws aren't quite as on the nose (laughs) But laws that definitely impact voting and voting rights, sentencing, what is deemed a crime and not a crime, well, that likewise is on the agenda of the cementing of racial stratification. The the other leg, so to speak, that is very close to the work that I do day to day is religious and moral complicity. The way in which the religious enterprise co-signs or is completely silent in the face of racial injustice. This is actually a necessary component to keep in place. And I know it doesn't seem this way, especially as the blood cries out um, of the flimsy system that goes against the design of God, what God has given to us to keep that in place religious and moral complicity play a key role, a key role in maintaining the system of racial stratification. Pulpits that are completely quiet after January 6th. Pulpits that claim the love of Jesus is expansive and far reaching but say nothing or create theologies to support oppression and segregation. And the last piece that I will add is the illusion of normalcy or inevitability. This is just the way it is. This is just the way it is. And while it is true, and I'll show you my theological cards that sin and corruption and humans attempt to dehumanize each other and to be a harsh and unloving God over each other is as old as human time. That's true. But the racial enterprise and system that we have in the grand schema of the world history is new. But yet it presents itself as normal and inevitable normal and inevitable. This is just the way that it is. So these are four ways at least that I try to get my handles around, my mental handles around this topic of racial injustice that impacts all people that have been given a racialized identity, whether you wanted it or not. (laughs) All people have been drafted into this project and given a racial identity these are the ways in which that is cemented and stays into place i had thought about showing you a video clip but i didn't want to make wanted to make sure that we didn't have any uh technical issues but you are more than welcome to look up this clip of of the late great uh tony morrison um, Mother and author, a uh, compelling um, author and uh, social commentator. And this is a clip from a um, this 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 picture here is from a clip where Morrison is being asked about her thoughts on the uprisings, the Los Angeles riots. She's asked to consider uh, that those moments, and one of the things that she says, and she's been, I think, taken out of context at times, but I find her words, her writing, incredibly profound. And one of the things that she shares is how amazed she was. She certainly lamented the aftermath, the pain, the loss of the LA riots, but she talked about the ways in which people watched horrendous footage over and over and over again, and they didn't immediately take to the streets. They sat and waited months and months and months. They sat and waited for what they thought would be some expression of earthly justice, and it did not come. And Morrison reminds us of how amazing it is that humans who have experienced deep injustice individually or as a collective group, find themselves waiting, waiting for justice to come. And then we see the rupture that takes place after the acquittal of the officers involved in the beating of Rodney King. One of the things that Morrison shares in that clip is she talks about how she watched that footage with her son. That's why I noted here a mother and an author. She watched that footage with her son. And I thought to myself about the ways in which this conversation, while it is very much one about structure and systems, it is also about children and family members and grandparents. It is a deeply, deeply personal conversation when we talk about race and race in America. And let me just add this before I go on to the next slide. We often talk about race in incredibly insufficient ways as we uh, typically uh, emphasize the white black binary to the exclusion of Latinx and Asian peoples and to the flat out ignoring of indigenous people. But one of the things I often remind communities of what we think about that Black-white hyper-focus in our race conversations is that Blacks and whites in America, because of our history, because of the dynamics of human trafficking, is that what we're actually having that no one says out loud is we're having a family conversation. You see, my ancestors, and the ancestors of the people uh, of that family line that owned my family. Well, we're family. (laughs) We are related. And so this is one element that makes this story, this narrative so complicated because we're talking about the dynamics of a nation, of a system of injustice that is in which violence is necessary but also an expression of deep rooted and toxic family dysfunction. So to quote Dr. Hong again, shout out again, I was really moved by that talk. Um, she, one of the lines that she said was a call for a more expansive mindset. And as I thought about that, I, I began to think to myself about the necessity of a holy imagination This is something that I talk to students about and others and and people who lead organizations that I work with, that, that we have to have a call, a calling that we embrace for a holy imagination to be able to envision and to dream beyond these inevitable structures, systems of racism that are around us and in us. A holy imagination that works its way and resists scarcity thinking that nothing can happen, that nothing can be done, that better cannot be walked towards. And in many ways we find ourselves in a place of scarcity because we are traumatized. Race and racism are necessarily traumatizing. Categorization and stratification of people necessarily traumatizing. I've heard over and over again the word exhausting, exhausting, exhausting. And it made me think about one of the mothers of the church and the human rights movement of the United States, Fannie Lou Hamer, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. That, that's, that her famous quote epitomizes this sense of exhaustion, exhaustion, exhaustion. And so our holy imagination is robbed of the fuel that it needs because fear, fear is on the table. Exhaustion is on the table. Very real trauma is on the table. And even strategic ignorance, something that psychologists in my world, we talk about the ways in which we may find ourselves being selectively ignorant about the pain of our group and the pain of groups outside of our own. So we've got a lot of barriers in place that we have to acknowledge and work around and dismantle in order that we might enliven our individual and prayerfully collective holy imagination so that we might be able to dream together of what it will take to dismantle this racist system. But if you will indulge me just for a second, you know, I've added, I've already added my psychology flavor in here. You know, I'm, <laughs> I think I'm, the, I think I am the sole psychologist of, of, of the bunch. I think, um, I, I will also let you know my, my, my other, um, vocational identity is Sunday school teacher. Um, I haven't been able to teach Sunday school in quite some time, but it's one of my favorite things. And, um, if, if you will indulge me just for a moment, I wanted to lift a text up before you. And it is one that many of you may be very familiar with. And you may likely have an interpretation very different than my own. (laughs) And that's okay. We don't have to agree on that. Maybe you have some insights that you can share out. So feel free to throw those in the chat. But I want to tell you some of the things that jump out to me as I reflect on this passage. And as I think about it, as it relates to our conversation over the last two days, as I think about african-american and asian-american hopes and necessity of solidarity so acts 16 acts chapter 16 verses 16 through 24 and um, i'm gonna read this quickly to you and then i'm gonna pull out some themes that i want us to think about and i want them to kind of play a little bit loop a little in your mind as we move through our time to our remaining time together put those in your pocket And and certainly you're welcome to look at the beautiful faces of those dear little girls um, that are on that slide as well. Acts 16, 16 through 24, Paul and Silas in prison. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. The crowd, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods after they had been severely flogged. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Maybe many of you are familiar with that passage. Some people are Axe fans. Um, There are times in which the bondage that we are under in this system, it certainly benefits someone. Our bondage, the bondage, our placement in the hierarchy of racial stratification benefits someone. There are bitter factors of bondage and they make it their business not to see people set free. Along with that system, there are people who are flat out reluctant chain breakers. They're reluctant in the work of breaking chains. One of the things that strikes me about this little girl who is being exploited, who is a means of a profit for, an unjust, for unjust men in an unjust system is that she declares over and over and over again, stalking the people who claim to represent Jesus the liberator. Over and over and over again, her voice cries out until it gets on the apostle's last nerve <laughs> and not out of altruism, but out of just flat out annoyance. He sets her free. Reluctant chain breakers, that entire system, that entire system was built on injustice, the necessary bondage of a precious little girl. And so when she is set free and the system no longer can make its money as it does, Those who call themselves her owner are enraged, enraged. And they demand the blood of those reluctant chain breakers. They drag them before the magistrates. They make their case and they make such a case that it's not only them that cry out for blood, everyone else is in on it, everyone else is in on it. When we acknowledge the chains, the bondage, the oppression, the bigotry, the racial trauma, when we tell the truth about it, whether we're reluctant or whether we identify as justice seekers, We shouldn't be surprised when those who benefit from bondage yell before the magistrates and demand the blood even of reluctant chain breakers. The cost of solidarity is high. The cost of solidarity is high. And remember the system that we talked about, right? And how it has these different features that keep it in place how it keeps it situated because it is flimsy even though it lies to us even though it is monstrous even though it breaks bones and puts bullets into brains it's flimsy because it does not have the blessing of the thrice holy god and so that system of racism and racial injustice well that system is absolutely traumatizing because it necessitates violence it necessitates laws and policies it necessitates the illusion of inevitability and it necessitates even people's religious convictions to be co-opt on the agenda of keeping the system in place no wonder it's traumatizing no wonder it is traumatizing and no wonder We are exhausted, and no wonder some of us are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Maybe we'll be so tired, so tired that we won't use our holy imagination. Racial trauma is a topic that is near and dear to my work, um, and you can imagine why. Um, And one of the things that I have the the pleasure of doing is spending time with people in racial trauma healing um, groups and workshops. And some of the first things that we talk about is just racial trauma 101. Racial trauma is race-based traumatic stress. It's a result of our own experiences or witnessing racism, discrimination, or persistent prejudice. It has a profound impact on our mental health, our physical health, our relationships, the way we see the world. Trauma is almost like a set of lenses, right? That change the way we see what is in front of us and even how we see ourselves at times. And one of the ways that the body's nervous system responds to threat and trauma tells us, threat, threat, threat. And you may remember this from high school or maybe psych 101, fight, flight, or freeze. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all do. The body's natural response to stress. Ready to fight Mr. Bear, ready to run from Mr. Bear, or freezing when Mr. Bear comes out in the woods, right? It's our body's way or attempt to protect us. And in a nation that is filled with racial trauma. This way, this fight, fight, or freeze has become a way of being. And so it's no surprise that stress-related disorders and illnesses plague people that weigh us down in this necessary traumatic system of racialization. Well, one of the other kind of defenses that kicks in from our nervous system along with fight, flight, or freeze is a term that trauma therapists of late often like to lift up. And that is fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Fawn, fawning, you know, fawning. Uh, Maybe the threat comes forward and we think that we can make peace with the threat. Our traumatic response to the system of racism and justice, the wickedness of it, the threat of it, the necessary pillars and components of it, no matter where we find ourselves in that stratification or where we think we are in that system of stratification, fawning also becomes one of the reactions that we might find ourselves engaging in, attempting to make nice with the oppressive structure, attempting to make nice with it, And I propose to you today that there are times when individually but people groups as a response to the racially traumatizing elements of the racist system. And remember, race is necessarily traumatic. The different groups, the different groups. Take on some of these um, nervous system, neurological responses. And we may perceive each other as not really getting it because our responses are different. Those whose response to the racist system is fawning, making nice with it. Those whose response to the racist system is keeping their heads low. Those whose response to the racist system is fighting, yelling out. It is possible that we misinterpret each other. It is possible that we lack empathy for each other when I think it's most possible that we are all having different reactions at different times to the racially traumatic system. So ways for us to cope and heal racial trauma, because healing is going to be necessary, not after dismantling, (laughs) but throughout enduring dismantling of the racist structure, of the racist systems, of the racist ideology, laws, and practices. We cannot wait for healing to come. My goodness, (laughs) we have to figure out a way to to heal a little bit along the way so that we can have enough empathy and presence, even in a space like this, to hear the fullness of each other's stories, to notice how it kind of pinches, And to be able to sit with that, we have to have enough healing along the way, picking it up along the way, looking eschatologically to the full and completed healing that will come, and this is for believers, the full healing that will come, barring from the future, reminding us that there is healing available for the today, even if not complete in order for us to do justice. So we have to give space and voice to pain. One of the things I believe that I have heard uh, my Asian American siblings in Christ say throughout the last two days, um, some of our presenters and in in some of our group discussions is just the importance of maybe their own self permission of telling their story. Um, and an and acknowledgement of expectations of others hearing it, getting it, sharing it, saying it or passing a mic. But I, you know, this is my two cents. White supremacy doesn't usually pass microphones. You got to come with your own in your pocket. <laughs> and. Uh, and and voice your pain. Voice your pain, even if you're only voicing it to you. Belief is cathartic, it, it is not lost on me as someone who did uh, work in my psychology training as a trauma therapist about the power of belief. Believing yourself and believing other people's stories. And and as a believer, as a Christian who is, um, who is wrapped all up in the beauty of the resurrection, um, I am amazed that God cares a lot about belief. <laughs> This story of the cross is the story of a trauma that happens to a a minority within a context, feeling the oppression of the state, bearing the weight of systemic and personal sins and shame at the cross. And this Jesus invites us to believe the story of a traumatized Man, to believe it, to believe it, to place faith in the resurrection is to believe the story of one traumatized who bore the weight of sins. Belief is amazing, it's tremendous. To use a psychology word, it may even be cathartic. So voice voicing our pain is so necessary even if just to ourselves or maybe most importantly, to ourselves. Affinity group spaces. So in, in the higher education context, working as a faculty administrator, I worked with uh, first-generation college students, international students, um, and, and, and American minority students, many different groups of student populations. And and one of the things that I would often get, even more so in uh, Christian spaces, is that people would, would ask questions about um, affinity groups, so um, a club or an organization um, that was devoted to um, the understanding and uh, solidarity and connection and support of, of a particular group. So the Latinx group or the Asian American Student Association group or um, the, the African Student Association group, for example, wh- why do they need affinity spaces? Isn't this some form of segregation is what people would eventually throw out even students Students of color (laughs) at times might find themselves feeling a little anxious or suspicious and wondering, am I supposed to be in this space? Well, I would explain the research and the the findings and all those things. I could make that case, right? But I would also tell them a little story about me. So I'm a product of a couple of different affinity spaces. Um, One is I'm a product of an all-girls school education, went to what I think is still the oldest remaining all-girls school, public school in the United States, Western High in Baltimore, where I grew up. In that space, the class clown, the person who was best in math, <laughs> um, the most ambitious and bold, were always it was always a teenage girl, <laughs> right? And that set me that set to me a unique lesson about who women are and who women can be. And I needed that in my development. I needed that. I needed to absorb that so that when I went into co-ed spaces, I already was convinced of that truth about what I had to bring to the table. I was not looking for the co-ed space to make me something that I could only be convinced of in the affinity space. I'm a two-time historically black college graduate. I can say the same narrative as well. Again, other ways to heal, prayer, mindfulness, mantras, knowing our triggers, even as we're having this conversation, listening to our bodies, and then activism and expressing agency. Those are necessary elements of healing. So counting the cost. Remember I talked about solidarity is is costly. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. It's the words of Jesus, profound wisdom, because the costs are real. And I think weighing of the costs honors people. So we talk about the cost and we count the costs around this topic of racial solidarity, not to scare people, but to prepare them for what to expect so that they might persist so that they might persist. Isolation, in-group abandonment, identification with the oppressed group, so much so that they experience the violence and harassment that the oppressed group experiences, a sense of despair and doubt. And then from a very earthly standpoint, no guarantees. Will my Advocacy, will my speaking out, will it produce the result that I want it to result now? And I'm so grateful for Dr. Tran's reminder that solidarity in itself is an expression of liberation. Isolation. Juliet Hampton Morgan um, was a white woman in her early 40s. Only child of a wealthy, incredibly influent family in the South. I bring her up to you, some of you might be really familiar with her, when we think about counting the cost and the narrative of isolation, because she is a woman who joined a Black Bible study. It's a white woman in the deep self who joined some Black folks praying. And some kind of way, that took this woman who was incredibly quiet, kind of stereotypical librarian, shout out to librarians. Um, And it caused her to do something on those buses and during when when African Americans were made to go to the back or when they she would get up and she would pull that bell to stop that whole bus the shy woman would do this and she would write articles after article about how wrong how wrong segregation was and is but She endured great isolation, harassment, and violence that wealthy and affluent family disowned her. No one stopped the attacks on her home and her isolation drove her to a place of deep, deep despair. And at about the age of 43, Juliet Hampton Morgan became a martyr of the Montgomery bus boycott in taking her own life. I say this to say that we must stick together and not go it alone. The Juliet Hampton Morgans amongst us today should know that we are in this together, together. When we have very simple expressions, now I'm not even talking about kind of deep and, 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 and weighty expressions of solidarity. I'm talking about like, you know, a webinar or simply posting something online that says, um, stop Asian American violence, stop violence against Asian American people. When an Asian American puts out publicly Black Lives Matter, we must prepare ourselves for online harassment, painful emails, not from white supremacists out there, but even from people within our own group who question our loyalty, respect, and our love for our own group because of our advocacy. I'll tell you a short story, then I'll shut it down, Dr. Latiborne. At the beginning of the, um, at the very beginning of the pandemic, Uh, we were already seeing the ways in which Asian American businesses um, were being mistreated and ignored. Um, And again, obviously, all this plays into some of the things that we've already alluded to. And a local African-American pastor uh, put out a pretty simple tweet. It was a picture of him and his teenage daughter going to pick up some food from their favorite (laughs) Chinese food spot in their city. He reminded the people on his Modest, but fairly large uh, social media account. Let us not forget our Asian American brothers and sisters. He spent his entire next two days. Fending off the words of people in his own group who were angry. But what about anti-blackness amongst Asians? Where are they for us? You must not love black people. <laughs> Hundreds, thousands of threads started taking his picture, mocking him, using language like uncle Tom, uh, using phrases like buck dancing, like dancing for uh, the white gays, and now the Asian gays. I know this story so intimately because that preacher is my husband and that teenager in the picture is my oldest daughter and what we learned over those two days of his simple tweet (laughs) is how we must continue to do the work even when people in our own group that we adore (laughs) become angry and don't understand why we are compelled to speak out and why we must continue to speak out. So solidarity requires fuel, love compels and provides courage for us to do this. Christ models what solidarity looks like, and the fact that he is the was incarnate. <laughs> You'll get more in, more into solidarity than that. We must have a deep regard for our own ethnic identity. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews that allowed him to be the apostles of the Gentiles. It is our deep connection with our own identity that fuels our ability to then love others. We don't have to become others to love others. We must love ourselves and from that reservoir, love others. It bears witness to the resurrection power for Christians when we unite in solidarity. And it is a reminder of the Nicene Creed when we do this important work that we as Christians are called to believe in one holy Catholic, apostolic church, the Catholicity of the church, which will be expressed in the eschatological reality of every tribe, nation, and tongue, not every caste system, not every racial hierarchy. It is a part of the crown that Christ has won in his great redemption work out of love for us. Let us be reminded of this creed that goes across people, groups, and generations, that we must place our belief in this one holy Catholic apostolic church. And I will stop now. Thank you. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement and ministry through our newsletter, blog and upcoming conferences at L. T-I-A-A dot com.